By now, you've heard us talk about Path Projects, the innovative running apparel company from California. Path Projects creates designs and technical fabrics that outperform, outstyle, and outrun the competition. Running shorts, baseliners, shirts, and headwear, everything Path Projects builds is the highest quality, timeless in style, and unmatched in price. To enhance their sponsorship of the Fastest Known Podcast and FastestKnownTime.com, Path Projects is giving three people a $75 gift card to be used on PathProjects.com for any product of your choice. To enter is simple. Go to PathProjects.com slash FKT and enter your email address and first and last name. You'll get a bonus entry by following Path Projects on Instagram. Enter now through October 20th, 2020. And thanks Path Projects for the support. And now a word from our friend Zoe at Trail Runner Magazine. Yeah, you know, there, there comes a time when I realized how deep in a hole I was. The problem with failure is that it's all-consuming. When you're in it, you feel like the only person who's ever been there. Yes, I wake up and I'm I'm in jail because I had gotten arrested the night before again. I was devastated when I lost my job and I thought that was the end. That was the point in my life where I was like, I'm a total failure. Because at every corner, it was another roadblock, and at every corner, it was me coming up short. From Trail Runner Magazine, this is DNF. DNF is a podcast about failure. It's about unfinished business and the unglamorous work of picking yourself up, dusting yourself off, and moving on. You know, somehow as a culture, we've come to perceive failure as these blemishes, these blips in the journey. But the reality is that in order to fail, you had to have put yourself out there. You had to have taken a risk. You had to have shown courage to do that. And that's, that's incredible. I spoke to elite athletes and everyday trail runners about their most vulnerable moments, not just in running, but in careers and relationships. It's about reframing our darkest times, our biggest failures, and recognizing their vital role in our greatest achievements. This sounds so cheesy, but it really is. It was the beginning. It's about the rocky beginnings that lead to our biggest victories. You know, I didn't really feel like I was going to win until I hit the track. It's a celebration of dreaming big and falling short. It's about missing the mark you've set for yourself and asking for help along the way. These are stories about runners living passionately, running fearlessly, and failing inevitably. Whether it's going to jail or just messing up a recipe for dinner, you learn the hard way and it sticks. This is DNF, a new podcast from Trail Runner Magazine. Thank you for joining the Fastest Known Podcast, bringing you some of the most interesting people in our sport, practicing physical distancing and social intimacy. And this is a really interesting podcast. We've never done this before. We're speaking with an author of a new book about to come out, although by the time you hear this, it will have come out. And I'll explain what I just meant by that in a minute. But first of all, let's welcome Matt Hart. Thanks, Matt. Hey, thanks, Buzz. Thanks for having me on. Definitely. So you wrote a book called Win at All Costs. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, just to ex- just to explain what I just said there. We are having this conversation on September 23rd. The book is going to be published on October 6th mm-hmm. by HarperCollins. And this podcast is going to be released on October 9th. The reason being is you got some serious things to say in this book, and the publisher doesn't want these to leak out. They're kind of contentious. They're heavy-hitting things. And so we're recording this, but we're not going to release it until after the book comes out on the 6th. So you want to just kind of hit us from with the bottom line here right out of the gate? Like, uh, (laughs) what's in this book? Oh, wow. Well... It's kind of hard to sum up, but it is the rise and fall of the Nike Oregon project. You know, that's how I've uh, figured out how to succinctly uh, say what's in the book. But it's basically, you know, a Nike sponsored program. um, And they sponsored a team of athletes that trained and worked out on the Nike campus. And with the idea, and, and they started this team back in 2001, basically at the nadir of uh, American distance running. Uh, so, you know, decades, uh, 15 years or so after uh, Frank Shorter, you know, had dominated the sport of marathoning, 
American running had had hit a low point, uh, and Nike and one of their employees, Alberto Salazar, who was also uh, a former professional marathoner, one of the best uh, in the world in the early '80s, decided together that they would start a team, and they called it the Nike Oregon Project. Um, and then began recruiting American athletes, really to bring American running, distance running, um, back to dominance on, on the international field. You know, in the Olympic in the Olympic and World Championship events. And so the book sort of details um, really where the team kind of went off the rails. Uh, and almost a year ago now, September 30th, 2019, Alberto Salazar was banned from sport for four years uh, for, uh, from, from United States Anti-Doping Agency, um, as was the team doctor, Dr. Jeffrey Brown, an endocrinologist out of Houston. And so the book uh, really is the story of the Oregon Project from inception to destruction. And you were there because, like you said, September 30th, this house of cards came crashing down. Mm-hmm. And as you just mentioned, the Oregon Project was it. This was the shits, right? They, yeah. they, not them, but Nike sponsored USATF. If there's a dispute at a race, sometimes if it was a Nike athlete, it looked like it might go in their favor. That's right. But my gosh. I mean, the, the lineup here, um, we're talking about Galen Rupp, mm-hmm. Jordan Hesse, Shane Rowberry. And Mo Farah, right? That's right. Yeah. Jason Ritzenheim, the two Gauchers, Matt Centrowitz. Matt, of course, won a gold medal in the 1500 meters. So this was the deal. Mm-hmm. This was, they succeeded in this reestablishing America as a long distance powerhouse. Mm-hmm. But turns out someone was cheating. Is that what this book is saying? Yeah. Um, yeah, there seemed to be uh, sort of a culture of deception, as I say in the subtitle, that that grew around Salazar and John Capriotti, these very powerful Nike adorned men uh, in the or on in Oregon on the Nike campus. You know, Nike is the most powerful brand in the sport. Uh, you know, it's the largest sports brand on earth. Uh, Phil Knight, its founder, is a billionaire. Um, and Nike is, you know, worth uh, at the moment, I think around $35 billion, you know, head and shoulders above any other brand in the sport. And they just had come to dominate it to such a degree that, you know, they're, they're, they on campus grew sort of a win at all cost ethos. You know, athletes were commodities, um, you know, and this started in Frank Shorter's day. And he, he actually gave me that term. They felt like they were being, you know, traded. Uh, by the powers that be um, in and around the Olympics. And so, you know, Nike, uh, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to sum it up, but, you know, they really are and have been a a very competitive brand and winning means a lot to them. And they started to treat the, and and have been treating athletes, you know, unfairly uh, in a lot of ways uh, for years. And so, you know, they will, like you said, they had been uh, funding U.S. running and, um, you know, they had undue power in basically every avenue uh, of the sport of running. And um, with great power comes great responsibility. And Alberto really abused it, you know, um, and as is and it resulted in a four year doping ban. And and even worse than that, there's, you know, stories um, that are still filtering out about just how abusive he was, uh, you know, to Mary Kane, Mary Kane came out. Um, Alberto was, the ban was announced September 30th last year. Uh, and, uh, I, I helped report it in the New York times. And, you know, Mary Kane was, um, a, an athlete who came around later and, and, you know, seeing him get banned sort of opened up her eyes to what had possibly happened to her while she was on campus and working with him. And, you know, the stories that trickle trickled out from there were, um, you know, even above and beyond doping bans, it's just sad. You know, he, he betrayed the trust of many, many athletes. And yeah, I saw that. I saw that video. Mary Kane's video. Wow. Ouch. This is fascinating because like you say, September 30th, just last year, Mm -hmm. huge. This was by far the biggest news in the world of running. And yet you were you were already on the case. Yeah. When did you, yeah, you were on it, Matt. You were uh, the guy on the scene. When did you start working on this book? Um, in 2017, actually. 
Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, I, this is, I consider this a beat. I mean, I don't really have beats, but you know, I'm, um, running is something I love and, you know, had taken seriously for years. And so when I started writing, you know, it was a journalistic interest of mine, both endurance and human powered athletics uh, as, but then of course, performance enhancing drugs as well. And so I think because I was sort of in this milieu and, and, and was part of the discussion or at least talking to athletes about uh, drugs and often reporting on it, I managed, you know, it, it's a confidential source, so I don't say who, but I managed to get my hands on uh, the USADA, a, a secret, a private USADA document. And it's kind of complicated to explain, but the United States Anti-Doping Agency had been tipped off years ago and they had amassed a, a case against Alberto Salazar and Dr. Jeffrey Brown, the doctor, the team doctor out of Houston. And um, this document was private to them, but they had they had used it to try to compel the Texas Medical Board to make Dr. Brown hand over medical records of athletes so they could sort of corroborate some evidence uh, and build a case. And so that document was supposed to be shared just between, you know, the organizations and um, the fancy bear Russian hackers. Um, I mean, it's a convoluted story. Stop me if I'm going back too far. But uh, um, Russia had just been banned from sport for, you know, systemic doping um, throughout the Olympics. And so um, it's thought that the Russian hackers wanted to then see what they could find if they hacked around, if they hacked into USADA's uh, mail servers or got into their file system. What could we find on U.S. athletes almost to exonerate the Russians or to say, hey, look, we're not the only ones doing it. And they found a bunch of documents that, you know, listed the therapeutic use exemption files on athletes. Um, some really prominent and famous athletes who, and, and that's that's legal drug use, that's legal performance enhancing drug use. It's called a TUE, a therapeutic use exemption. And what what they also found was this document that USADA had paired, prepared against Nike and Nike, the Nike Oregon Project in Alberto and um, Dr. Brown. And so all that to say, because I report on this stuff, I, I found myself in possession of this file before it went public. Year, uh, you know, a while before it went public. And so uh, being a writer and a journalist, I got in touch with uh, my editor at the New York Times. And I said, this is what I've got. Uh, let's write about it. And so that's really when I became um, involved in the story. I mean, I had honestly, I had been following along, uh, you know, been paying attention and reading everything and talking to some of the other journalists on the beat. Uh, but really, when I got my hands on the document, it, it, I became you know deeply involved. Wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I didn't I didn't know that part, man. Yeah. I knew that you'd been on this beat for some time and knew you'd been working on this book for some time, mm -hmm. but I had no idea that Russian hacker <laughs> hackers got the file. But the file was correct. It wasn't fake news at all. It was it was all totally real and totally documented. It was That's right. Yeah. It was just private at that point. Mm -hmm. And somehow you found yourself in your own words. <laughs> In possession of this file, we don't have to go into that, right? Oh, if you want to tell us, you could. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, you already had a great quote from Frank Shorter and a great quote from Spider Man at the same time. So, we'll th those are very credible. So, we'll let those go for now. So, you got these. They got this amazing file. You started working on this book almost three years ago. So, you were on the case. So, when he finally got kicked out for four years and the whole house of cards collapsed mm -hmm. on October 10th, the Oregon project just folded. They just said, oops, we're done. Yeah. You know, sorry about that. Your book wasn't out yet. Did you feel that, gosh, I'm too late or did you have to write another chapter? How'd that work in terms of your book? Um, you know, it, there had been reporting sort of, I felt like the reporting was uh, almost breaking all around me at the same time. So, you know, it was really interesting. As I went along, people were willing to tell me new things. And as a journalist, you know, you want to, my inclination was to call the New York Times or someone else and say, we need to write about this. But since I was writing a book, uh, I felt like I had to save some of my reporting for the book. I mean, that's what I was tasked with doing anymore. I wasn't on staff at any of these uh, magazines or newspapers. 
And so there were there were a lot of things that I had in the book, uh, you know, ready for October 6th publication that started to come out uh, in public that other great journalists, you know, were, were, were finding and then publishing. And so that was disheartening on some level. Um, but it was pretty clear that the story hadn't been told in its totality. And there was still, you know, uh, a great appetite for that. And so, um, but then, you know, as I started putting pieces together, really things start to, to come to you and, and become clear. Um, and things that just hadn't been, you know, dots that hadn't been connected and things that hadn't been pointed out. And so there's a lot left in the book. And um, I'm, I was, I mean, at times I was shocked that things I found hadn't yet made it to the headlines. Um, so. Did you have to write an additional chapter after Rupp, uh, after Rupp, after Salazar got the four years? No, you know, I wasn't done yet. I finished in December. And so, Ooh. yeah. Um, that's how long books take to come out too. We're talking about from December to October. I haven't been able to touch the copy at all. It's kind of done. Um, but, you know, oh, I had oh, Matt, oh, how, how, for how long have I been trying to get you on this podcast? <laughs> I know it's been a while. I appreciate that. I appreciate your persistence. <laughs> um, I, I've been working on you for six months, I think maybe longer. Yeah. It's been at least that long for sure. <laughs> well, good we're catching up, and now it's now it's all happening. Now it's all coming out. Yeah, so see. a couple of things here that uh, come up for me. First, let's add a little bit more context. We noted the the power of Nike mm-hmm. and the fact that the Nor- Nike Oregon project actually succeeded, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you know, Central Wits is winning gold in the fifteen hundred meters, which is just nuts. Uh, Mo Farah and Galen Rupp went one two. Yeah at the 5,000, which is like, really? I mean, that, that's incredible. Yeah. But Salazar himself, this guy is epic, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, this guy is, uh, hmm. I mean, he's one of these classic figures in that what category do you put him in, right? He, he won the New York City Marathon three years in a row. He won the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. Each time, just turning himself inside out, right? right. I mean, th- this guy was not cruising. He didn't. He didn't make it look easy like the Kenyans. He was kind of the opposite in that respect. Right. And then he like quit running. He couldn't deal. He opened a restaurant in Seattle. You know, he was just totally out of it. And then he scraped himself back together and won Comrades, which is by far the most competitive ultra race in the world. Mm-hmm. So this guy, I think win at all costs is a pretty good title. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I was doing the re- initial reporting for the New York Times, I, one of his assistant coaches turned whistleblowers was Steve Magnus. You know, he's now uh, a famed coach. But I, I asked him, like, I'm trying to figure, figure this guy out on some level. And I asked him, have you? And he's like, the only way I can describe him is, you know, he's just a win at all cost guy. And, and that's kind of where the title came from and yeah like you said he raced himself to death on more than one occasion i mean they they were doing last rites on him once when they put him in a kiddie pool to raise his temperature uh his core temperature back up they thought he was dead you know he was he had this ability um you know an admirable ability uh to to you know race himself quite possibly harder than anyone we'd ever seen i mean who else can say that they've raced themselves to death on more than one occasion um, <laughs> I heard it was 42 seconds that his heart stopped. If, I think it's 14 because that's the title of his book. Ah, yeah. Oh, wow. no. Well, that's Sorry, pretty. 14 minutes, I think. Yeah. 14 minutes? The book is called 14 Minutes of Running Legends, Life and Death and Life. <laughs> okay. Well, so, yeah, you're right. 14 four, minutes. 14 minutes. That's, yeah. that's, that's enough. Yeah. So, that was 2007. He was on Nike campus with uh, Galen Rupp and the Rodinsky brothers, and he had a heart attack. He went down uh, on Nike campus, um, right on the grass field, and uh, he he basically died. His heart had stopped for 14 minutes until they resuscitated him. So that's what that uh, the title of the book is referring to. Okay. Yeah. Well, this story sounds, if, if I may, similar to John's, uh, John Krakauer's, uh, the way his stuff comes to him. He's obviously published some amazing books that's which were turned into movies and they came from these leads mm. 
for people who trusted him to tell the story. And that's how he got a lot of his material. Uh, does this remind you of that? This is this type of, of course, his was a little more historical fiction, but you, well, yours is more documentary. But does this remind you at all of some of John's work? Yeah, it's interesting you put that together. I, you know, I've always sort of used his career as a, a roadmap of some sort. Um, but I, I, honestly, it seemed impossible to do for a, for a long time. I mean, he had, I think he was a staff writer at Outside when he was um, kind of writing about basically how ridiculous it was to go up Everest and, and or these big peaks. If you had enough money, you could get up the mountain. That was his basic conceit i think and so out i think he had done it on aconcagua first and written a very successful piece and so outside sent him to everest and of course he was witness to the tragedy and half his team you know didn't survive um but the idea of writing a a long magazine story and then realizing there's a book in that was always something yeah that i've kind of paid attention to it's just really i mean it's it's easy it's an easy concept but it's really hard to figure out you know, when you have a, a story that can carry a book or deserves a book. But yeah, his career. Five years later, it sounds mm-hmm. obvious. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> no. But when you're sitting down there, and you're a good athlete, by the way, people should go on the show notes and see your bio, but you're a two-time hard rock finisher, if I recollect correctly. Right, yeah. yeah, I've seen you out there. You're top 15. You're, you've been an excellent athlete, a ski mountaineer. And of course, the founder of the Boulder Outdoor Book Club. That's right. Should keep that in the in your bio. Yeah. And but you had to put your butt in the chair for three years to get this book done. That's right. That was a chore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I love this work. It's uh, interesting and stimulating, and it's exactly what I want to be doing. But um, this, uh, you know, as you alluded to, there's some timelines here and. You know, the, the publisher basically gave me 13 months to get it done. And um, the initial goal was to publish it before the 2020 Olympics. Um, and, it, I mean, it was virtually impossible. It was so hard to do. There, there's just so many things in being a first-time author that I didn't realize, as well as the publisher. You know, there was just um, so much reporting, so many people to try to talk to. I interviewed nearly 100 people, you know, and that, that takes a lot of time. That's, you know often I'd have it back to back to back interviews and yeah, sitting at a desk for a long time. And, and, uh, it was tough. I'll say that. And recently now that the book's, you know, pretty much done and and buttoned up and out of my hands, I've been getting back out there and it feels so good. I actually just feel so much healthier when I have a good dose of the outdoors and and climb some mountains. Well, now that the book's been published, you have to quit smoking cigarettes (laughs) and drinking whiskey every night. (laughs) But you did get it done before the 2020 Olympics. I did. That's right. Yeah, good point. Um, yeah. I mean, the timing ended up uh, being you know, just fine because the case went on for a lot longer um, than anyone had envisioned. You know, they, well, well, going back to the uh, metaphor with John, he told me in person one time that he, you know, he was getting death threats. Uh, after particularly this book on the Mormon history. Mm-hmm. So what about you? Did you or your publisher consult with an attorney on some of these allegations that are in your book? Yeah. Yeah. That's part and parcel to this kind of book, a book, a contentious book. Um, that's definitely, so, I mean, I did a number of things. I don't know how far into the nitty gritty you want to get here, but I hired fact checkers to check every word that I wrote. Um, I hired a girl, uh, uh, Parker Henry. Hopefully she won't be mad at me for calling her out. But she used to be, uh, you know, the deputy checker at The New Yorker. They're widely seen as the best, uh, most factual magazine on earth. Uh, And so I hired the best person I could. And she went through word by word. She called back all my sources. And so what's interesting is if you write a newspaper article or a magazine story, you know, they will often call people back. But she went above and beyond. I mean, she was reading entire sections Uh, to people in the book. And really that's, you know, to protect us, to make sure I got everything right. You know, you can always mishear something, but then uh, above and beyond that Harper Collins has a team of literary lawyers. And so I got paired with one of the, one of the guys, more than one lawyer read it. And, and you know, we went again, paragraph by paragraph. Um, And so a lot, a lot of things had to be changed or, or fixed in some ways. And, you know, that also means there's, 
allegations and stories that are just left on the floor that you can't actually include in the book. There are a few things that are so, uh, I don't know. I, I wasn't able to corroborate certain things to a degree that they, you know, you'd be comfortable putting it in the book, but there are some crazy extracurricular stories. I can tell, I can tell you after uh, we stopped recording that just couldn't make the book, but um, some of which I'm, I'm pretty sure are true, but you know, there's this, just a different standard of course, when you're, when you're going to write anything in a book. So yeah, I mean, it went through pretty rigorous fact-checking and, and a lawyer in a law review. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive, Matt. Yeah. Now, of course, our listeners are saying, well, Matt, if you'd like to tell us a few of those stories right now, we'd be happy to hear them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some stuff, there's enough in the book, I think, to, to keep uh, all the readers entertained. But if you see okay. a party, maybe I could tell you. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> we'll wait for the next party. Yeah. Hey, well, Oh, I just, I got a question. I have to, this question just popped into my mind. So I'm a member of the book club uh-huh. with, that you started. Are we going to review your book at the next book club meeting? Oh God. <laughs> That's brilliant. I got, I got a few good ideas. That's one of them. I would like to not be there if you do that. Um, <laughs> I brought this up to other authors before. We actually had an author come, um, in the beast of the garden in the garden of the beasts and not the one about the Nazis, the one about, um, uh, mountain lions and Boulder. He, he came and it was great. Cause we got to ask the author questions directly, but no, I, I, I don't think I could sit for that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, I, I'm right. happy to have you guys do it on your own, but I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got some, uh, nice credibility, with the endorsements right at the start, you know, people like Dina Castor, right? Yeah. That's, of course, uh, you know, Alex, Alex Hutchinson, who, you know, Alex, I, I read his column in Outside Magazine because he's got science on sports medicine. I, I don't really like people's opinions, to be perfectly honest, mm. but I, he quotes a lot of science. Since you got these people speaking highly of your book, that's, you know, I think, you're, I think you'd do well in, in the book club review. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting process there. But I was happy to get those blurbs back. Yeah, those are those are blurbs. You know, you send you send away a PDF or some early uh, version, some early galley version to select readers, and you hope that they like the book enough to send you something back. And those guys, yeah, I mean, I can't thank Dina. I've never even met, but she was gracious enough to read the book and give me an opinion. And, you know, Al, I, I agree. Alex is awesome. He's he's uh, he's uh, one of the best at describing and explaining the complicated sports science around what we do. So you had lawyers, you had hired a fact checker. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And there's things you can't tell us, but since it's October 9th right. and the book just came out October 6th, what are say two of the most revelation revelatory comments that you make in this book that people who haven't had time to read it yet want to know? Yeah, that's a good question. I probably should have prepared myself for that. But, um, you know, one of the things that sort of, there's a 10,000 foot view here of kind of what happened to me that, or what happened through the story that became apparent uh, through reporting it, you know, Alberto, had overtrained himself to such a degree, right? That he had considered suicide. He didn't want to live anymore. He couldn't run. Um, and, you know, we know about this stuff uh, and I've done that to myself. I have, you know, when I was an ultra runner, I had trained myself to such a low point hormonally that I just felt terrible. I didn't quite feel as bad as, uh, you know, suicidal ideation, but, um, when you look at what, what has happened to him, he trained himself so hard to compete on the top level that he sort of cratered his, you know, endocrine system and his hormones were a mess. And he suffered for years through this. And he saw a lot of doctors to try to fix himself. And what seems to be the lesson that he learned is that a lot of these prescription drugs really help performance. And, you know, he credited uh, Prozac uh, for his comrade's uh, victory in 1994. But we've come to find out through the reporting of the book that he was on testosterone at, at beginning in 1991, which is, you know, unambiguously illegal in all sports. But ultra running doesn't really have um, much testing that happens at the races. And so he was on and off it and claims to be off it when he raced. But, you know, there's long-term benefits to being on uh, steroids and and testosterone. um, So it's a really muddy water. But what happened, it seems like, is he learned um, that some of these prescription drugs 
you know, they are performance enhancers. And if you can figure out a way to get prescribed them, they can benefit you in your career. And it's at some point, the Nike Oregon project, it was an abject failure early on. You know, they didn't have much victory. They had some national scene uh, wins, but, you know, the guys at the top, uh, John Capriati, you know, the head of sports marketing, likely the man who's paid more money to, to, to athletes, to runners specifically than anyone else in the world. Uh, to be professionals, you know, those guys were very much a win at all costs sort of culture. And, you know, a nice story and a fifth place just wasn't going to cut it. And so I think Salazar learned some lessons in his career that unfortunately he he took into his coaching career. And so he's, he manipulated um, doctors and intimidated, uh, you know, athletes on the team and held their contracts over their heads. And, you know, Matt, Steve Magnus, one of the coaches, basically said he stopped getting paid at some point by Salazar so that Al, so that he would, you know, basically be in fear of his job on some level. Um, and so it seems like with what Alberto learned from cratering his own, uh, you know, career through overtraining, you know, he tried to apply some of those tactics to the athletes. And so they really did start to use uh, prescription drugs as performance enhancing drugs. And, you know, he had Dr. Brown uh, prescribing drugs that they knew would help. Uh, prednisone to damp down inflammation and give you some extra energy and thyroid stimulating hormones, um, even though the athletes weren't testing out of range. And, you know, that means basically you're, you have a healthy range of TSH, you know, thyroid stimulating hormone, you're in the range 0.45 or uh, up to five, I think. And so these athletes were, were uh, testing in the range and he would give them the drug anyway, because the drug helped them lose weight, you know, for even, and he also thought um, that you know thyroid hormones would increase somehow. They would also increase testosterone. He became obsessed with testosterone at some point. But so I mean, the ten thousand foot view is like he. It looks as though he went through this experience in in his own career, and then he applied the lessons he learned, rightfully or not, uh, to the athletes, and you know, really sort of um, pressured the athletes into things they shouldn't have been doing and, and didn't want to do. And we're questioning, you know, there's a quote in the book that was the title of the Nike or my, um, my Nike New York times piece, which was, is this legal? You know, Dathan Ritzenhain really challenged him on the L-carnitine infusions that he wanted the team to get. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that has sort of come out of this, you know, it's really hard for me to talk about, but there's um, the really salacious part is, at some point, Alberto, um, you know, it's alleged that he tried to um, kiss one of his athletes, um, which is really, you know, ridiculous and, and disheartening. Um, and then, of course, there's the Mary Kane uh, allegations. He, and he would, you know, he'd frequently fat shame the athletes uh, when they would get, he would weigh them in front of each other. Um, and so, wow. yeah, that's just sort of a, t a taste of of what's going on <laughs> that is a taste wow and it's uh somewhat of a sour taste but that's why people should buy the book you did your research that's really good stuff and a quick uh reminder in the show notes is where to buy the book how to buy the book so definitely go there to have a look at that well matt earlier we made a very positive correlation with john krakauer mm -hmm. but now i i'm reminded of a negative correlation with lance armstrong mm -hmm right? Testicular cancer. He came back big time and maybe he learned the same lesson that, wow, you know, I'm never going to be down again. And drugs work. He, he of course, never became a coach, mm. but obviously a famous bully. And just to, uh, for people who don't know, Mary Kane, that was fat shaming. It wasn't about drugs at all. It was, and people should definitely go look at her video. That was intense. Yeah. Well, he, you know, there were some drugs, um, you know, in an effort to allow her to lose weight. Um, she's, uh, I think she testified or she told the Times this, but she basically said he was, uh, and I heard this from a lot of athletes, actually, he would have them get on, um, you know, he would basically change up their birth control pills because there, uh, apparently there's some birth control that allows you, uh, a woman, a woman to menstruate less. And so, you know, the blood loss through menstruation means a lack, a less uh, red blood cells, oxygen carrying blood cells. And so he was trying, he would go that far to manipulate, um, you know, their, 
you know, their, the drugs that they were taking to, you know, not become pregnant, basically. Um, and so, and he, he gave her diuretics as well, I think she said in the New York Times piece. And so there were drugs also, like that was sort of part and parcel to his, his whole thing. I mean, it was reminiscent to Chris Carmichael, you know, David Walsh's book is great. And, and from Lance to Landis, I think it's the first chapter he talks about Carmichael had basically a briefcase full of substances that he would give the U23 team, the under 23 cycling team back in the day. Greg Strock is a great story. You guys should all go look up. But Salazar, too, had a bat. So uh, Carmichael, sorry, had a briefcase full of substances that he would hand out and give to the athletes. And he'd push, uh, you know, uh, pills into their into their energy bars during the race. And, and Salazar, too, had like two. Uh, and people testified to this in the USADA document. You can go look it up that he had bags of drugs with him, you know, prescription Celebrex for anti-inflammation when any athlete needed anything. He was sort of like a little pharmacy. I mean, it just sounds absurd. Actually, as I'm saying it, it's hard to believe that this is happening on the Michael Johnson track, you know, in Beaverton, Oregon. And, and Salazar has said Phil Knight could basically look out his window and see the athletes training. You know, it's happening right under the nose of the largest sports corporation in the world. Um, it's just shocking. But but they were winning. Yeah. They, yeah. Yep. They were winning, and that seemed to be what mattered most. Wow. It's sad because it leaves this, you know, it just leaves a trail of broken athletes, you know, and Caro was one of the biggest ones here. You know, every time we did an interview, it was just, you know, it was, it became emotional. She, she had grown to love and trust um, Alberto and Galen as a brother and Alberto as a, as a father. And they, you know, he betrayed her in every way, in the deepest level. And, 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 you know, that, that's sort of, you know detailed in the book and becomes clearer the further along you get but it's really just a sad story i mean it's a cautionary tale for other, for athletes and other coaches um because ultimately was all that worth it you know treating people in in that way i mean maybe he would say it, it is and and so we should acknowledge that he has the cas the cast um arbitrary um he has an arbitration he can still get off um the case of arbitration for sports so it's cas in, in, so Travis Tigart from USADA told me the case is probably going to go um, happen all over again. Uh, I think it's in Switzerland. And it, he has one more chance to get totally off uh, from his doping ban. And that'll happen in November. So about a, a month or so, it's going to uh, be relitigated a month or so after my book. But uh, he does have a chance to get off and we should acknowledge that. But it's really unlikely. And Travis also said... Um, He's hoping to get a lifetime ban for him this time. So to relitigate it, to go through the uh, court of arbitration in sport means that we get to redo this. And if we, Travis thinks four years was too soft a ban, and so he's really going to go for a lifetime ban this time. So he's exposing himself to more risk here. But He's rolling the dice. He's rolling the dice. But it's possible he could get off. I mean, and I guess it makes sense because his career is, is over, essentially. But if he can get off, he might be able to pull something out. Well, I was, that was my next question, Matt. And but first, let me say you're talking with the top people. I mean, Travis Tigart, right? I mean, so th this is an extremely credible book. Yeah. So I want to congratulate you here live on the air oh, for the sorry. terrific homework that you've done. I mean, the people you're mentioning, the credibility that you've established, people should definitely buy the book because you've done the work, which I think people appreciate, particularly in this day and age. Now, my personal comment here is, I mean. Salazar is done. Okay, so say he gets off. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, who's gonna, <laughs> who, wants who is going to hire him? Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's tough. We want to be empathetic. I mean, you know, Nike is supporting him as they did Lance Armstrong. Really, they supported Lance until the last shoe fell. You know, until all, right up until all the Tour de France were taken from him, and they're they're loyal. Um, Despite the evidence, they seem to remain loyal to these um, powerful men and these famous athletes. And so the last word from Mark Parker and the Nike Corporation was that they're going to fully support Alberto in, in his uh, case, you know, the CAS case, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, his last appeal, basically, uh, which is somewhat wow. shocking if you think about it. I mean, so, you know, when I went to Nike, I spent I spent some time there on campus and trying to interview people. The Alberto Salazar building on campus was um, under renovation. 
in I, I think it was in October after after the um, after he'd been banned from sport and it had been announced, they were they were trying to reopen the building. The construction was done and they were going to rededicate the building to Alberto Salazar. And more than four hundred Nike employees on campus picketed out in front of the building. You know, right in front of the Steve Prefontaine building, right on Lake Nike. 400 people had held signs up like, we believe Mary and just do the right thing. You know, so Nike's internally uh, in great turmoil right now. You know, the, the, the rank and file was not going to put up with them rededicating this building to Alberto Salazar because the, you know, upper management seemed to have their head in the sand about what actually happened. Um, it's just shocking, really. Um, that is an incredible story, Matt. Yeah. Uh, somehow... Um, hmm. somehow, you know, about Alberto getting kicked out. There's a few things that without thinking about it, that we can kind of sort out in our own mind. Mm -hmm. But that, what you just said, I've never heard that. I've never read that. And somehow that is very impactful to hear. So Nike is is doubling down. They're saying, yeah, sure. The Alberto Salazar building and 400 employees picket their own company. This sounds like Facebook, right? This is another, here, my third analogy um, from Krakauer to Lance to now Facebook, where their Facebook power, you know, here's the the third old cliche quote, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think Facebook has gone in that direction. The, the, The social network is, they've gone off the deep end with their profit engine that benefits from um, literally benefits and profits from fake news. If something is very disruptive and crazy and gets people all upset, it makes them more money. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the employees aren't into that. And so it's, uh, wow, this, this is a big story. Yeah. I mean, it was shocking to report. You know, there were, one of the other things that I failed to mention earlier was, you know, when you get involved in a program like this, you the athletes, and, and I, I, I could, I, I realized this through some of the interviews, you know, they're sometimes forced to just contort themselves um, to at least seem like they're telling the truth when they're working in a program like this. It, it was, you know, you know, Galen Rupp came out and said he's doing everything to help authorities. And, and during the case, you know, he was absolutely not, you know, he wasn't turning over his medical records. He was hiding behind the Nike lawyers and refusing to do interviews. And Mo Farah got questioned by USADA and he denied knowing anything about L-carnitine. And, you know, Tara Erdman Welling got asked by USADA, have you ever seen Dr. Brown? And she said, no, she blatantly lied to them. So just being in the orbit, you know, these are, you know, I'm sure most of these athletes got into this sport not to cheat or do anything, but they've gotten to do anything untoward, but they've, you know, they've gotten caught up in this mess of, you know, really aggressive when it all costs, you know, Nike men. Um, and, and anyway, hopefully well, the book. Man, well. You know, no, people buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds really good. Matt did a lot of work, but Matt, here is a question that could consume part two of the podcast, but I'm going to just give it a shot anyway, just to kind of throw this across our respective bows. Maybe you have to do whatever it takes to win and you are rewarded. Maybe that is the culture that we're in. Uh, so I know you've thought about this because you're an intelligent, reflective guy. So we could easily go, oh, they cheated. They're bad. We didn't cheat. We're good. But you and I, not like you and I made money uh, running. It's not like you and I were at the top of the game. Mm. And so it's easy to be the good guy. And it's easy to point the finger at the bad guy, which certainly is justifiable. But do we live in a culture that actually does reward winning at all costs. Yeah, it's, it certainly seems that way. <laughs> I can't argue with you. Um, you know, when, this is a really interesting topic, and we could talk about this for hours. I, I, I feel like, you know, you sign up to play a sport and you become good at it, and then you realize you, you can do it as a profession. I, I, you know, it's a, it's a stepwise change in your attitude towards what it takes to get there, you know. Um, and so, but at the and I, and I see that and I understand that. And when you find out that the Russians are systematically doping all their athletes, you know, when Stepanova came out 
and told us what it was actually like to be a Russian athlete. It was just shocking. I mean, they're on, you know, it, it's government approved. It's government mandated, actually, uh, for her time on the Russian team. And then to think you're, you know, a solo athlete in America, and maybe you have some of the best physiology. You know, you you were, you were lucky enough to be born to parents that gave you some great genetics for sport or or running the marathon, for instance. But the people you're competing against are are doing anything it takes. And I mean, that's Frank Shorter's story to a T. You know, he won the 72 marathon gold. And then in 76, he was beaten by uh, Walt Zierpinski, who, you know, we found out later had been on drugs. And Frank never got that gold medal. You know, he, he lost that gold medal forever. Uh, and we found out East right. Germany fell that, you know, oh, all these guys are on this list of people who are on drugs. and uh, Right. Yeah, Frank famously won in Munich, 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenny Moore, by the way, is fourth. He was pretty close to a medal also. Mm-hmm. And it looked great for Frank. He was dominant, 1976, Montreal, Veldemir Kerpinski from East Germany. And everyone's going, who is yeah, this Frank guy? didn't know who he was. He thought he was another athlete the whole race and didn't realize he was uh, German until after the race when he tried to speak to him. And he said, or something. I think that's, do you speak German? (laughs) That's my best attempt at it. Uh, Ironically, Frank was born in Germany, but that's not relevant to the situation. So again, my question is uh, definitely not a proposal, definitely, definitely not my opinion, but it is interesting that if we live in a culture where winning at all costs is rewarded. So if you make bank, if you achieve your goals, and then later if you get caught and you're discredited, well, you know, Kropinski still has his gold medal, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, this is just a devil's advocate here, but also more so it's looking at ourselves because pointing the finger elsewhere is very easy, but sometimes maybe we should look at ourselves and say, what do we value? Yeah. And fortunately the world of ultra running is really, really good. In my opinion, The, the world of ultra running values, you know, personal integrity and this amazing egalitarian attitude that we're all in it together and we're here to support each other. Yeah. Well, some other sports, they kind of value, you know, win or get lost. So this, I think this is an interesting thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Sorry, I went so far afield. I didn't really answer your question. I mean, I had this, uh, um, I've had this conversation before and I, I, I know what you're shooting at, but it's almost like, you know, sports are arbitrary, right? The rules of sports are arbitrary. The, the pitching mounds, whatever, 60.5 feet away from the diamond. Now, you could cheat and you could step closer, but you're going to be disqualified, right? The, the hoop's 10 feet tall, and that's totally arbitrary. And so the fact that you can't use testosterone, you know, they WADA has figured out that, you know, this is uh, un, possibly unsafe and unhealthy, and, you know, they have a list of other drugs that we put on there. And so I would say, you know, you've already we've already agreed in the sport that we're going to stay on the trail during an ultramarathon and run from the beginning to the end and these are all arbitrary rules and some i've, I've heard the argument that there's so the, why is it that you can't take epo but you can uh sleep in an altitude tent both are completely artificial ways to increase your red blood cells which will help your performance right and so I, maybe you're digging around at that one and i i agree that that does seem arbitrary and and kind of ridiculous that one's legal and one isn't, but there's a clear line there and we all know where it is and that's what's legal to do in the sport. Um, and I mean, you just hope that athletes are willing to play by the rules, but it, you're right. It seems as though they're just not because the stakes are so high. I mean, I had a, a high ranking doping official tell me um, for background, not for attribution that if you see a sport on television he would guess that it's completely tainted with drugs. You know, if it's on TV, the assumption being if it's on TV, there's enough money in the sport that it's already poisoned. People are trying to do everything they can to make that little bit of money. And I don't necessarily agree, but he certainly was more, is more of an expert than I am. It's sad at the end of the day, I think, that an athlete would have to do that to themselves. I mean, there are East Germans who are still going through the effects of the rampant drug use that they use, Walt, Walt Zerfinski included, you know, like there's long-term effects to these drugs and using them willy-nilly um, can turn out pretty bad. <laughs> 
Well, Salazar had a heart attack. Yeah, and there's and I make that link in the book. You know, there's pretty good evidence that testosterone in certain men can increase your chance of uh, heart conditions and heart attacks. And so it could be a total coincidence, but there's you know some pretty obvious things to look at here. You know, I mean, Dr. Uh, um, Lance Armstrong's doping doctor, Michele Ferrari, has been quoted in the in, in the news as saying, "I think I gave Lance Armstrong cancer." You know, and so think about that. You know, the whole the whole cancer myth came from his own misuse of these really powerful drugs. I mean, if that's true, and Lance acknowledged that in the latest Thirty for Thirty on ESPN, he thinks it was the HGH, the human growth hormone, that possibly could have you know, advanced a cancer cell. If you think about testosterone and HGH, they're all about growth and, and cell duplication. And if you have cancer, that's just going to make it go from the testicles to the lungs, to the brain, which is exact, you know, it's going to make it run wire, wild. Let's make it, uh, set it off like a wildfire. But anyway, right. Yeah. So that's, it's interesting to think about. I mean, Frank, one of the things Frank really told me was like, it wasn't a holier than thou thing for him and Steve Prefontaine. So there's some other revelatory stuff in here about Prefontaine and, and nothing untoward. You know, Frank was good friends with him and he said, you know, we just, we didn't use drugs. And I tried to figure out why, because there were people around them. And there's a story in the book about a Texas athlete that he was hanging out with Steve Prefontaine after a race, Frank and this other athlete. And the guy's like, I don't think I would have been able to win the mile if I hadn't been on those steroids for the last few months. And he said he and Prefontaine just looked at each other like, what? And Frank's explanation was at the time, at least it wasn't holier than thou. He was like, I was just scared of what the possible drugs could do. You know, and Frank, you know, eventually uh, passed the bar and, and, you know, became a lawyer and he's a smart guy basically. And he, I think he had been pre-med even. So he understood, you know, on some level that um, taking these drugs without, you know, without a need, um, it can have you know, dire consequences in the end. And he told me that uh, I, the, this particular athlete died in his 50s. And, you know, this could all be coincidence. You know, we don't have any, you, you couldn't uh, rightfully do um, any any tests to this effect. But, you know, there's a long line of, uh, you know, adverse effects after taking drugs that you, you know, you a lot of these athletes obviously don't need them. They're just for performance. And so anyway, that's far afield. But it's really interesting to think about Frank Shorter and I had the same birthday. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he was great. And his quote, he, well, Frank, that, that's talent. And one of his quotes I always liked was, uh, asked about the key to success, something you alluded to earlier today, Matt, choose your parents carefully. Yeah, exactly. And he did. I mean, the people around him said he had just incredible talent. I mean, he, he, he could wail away and he had... Uh, obviously trained and ran really hard, but he had that, that cardiovascular, that efficiency. Yeah. Um, and then, as you know, I'm just going to keep keep the scales a little bit balanced here. The one that's legal, always has been legal and is part of the sport, is alcohol. Hmm. And far, far, by a factor of thousands, more people have been hurt by alcohol, which is quite legal, hmm. than by the so-called illegal drugs. So as you know, it's a it's an prefontaine, you know, not wanting to say anything explicit, being one of the possible cases there. Yeah, yeah, but EPO saves people's lives. That's what it's for. Right. Alcohol has never saved anyone's life. One's illegal, that one's legal. It depends on the context. Mm -hmm. So it's so fascinating. Yeah, and I like what you said about Frank and uh, Steve. They were they weren't trying to be good guys they were just saying whoa i don't want to go there i don't want to do this yeah and i think that's you know i think that's where where most of us are i like to note that i like that comment by that person who didn't want to be attributed but is happy to say that if you're watching on tv there's enough money involved that people are probably cheating yeah. fkts have yet to be on cbs wide world of sports <laughs> that's right i mean i, I hate <laughs> to be the wet blanket but I know of people who've, you know, done some, I would say, gray area tactics. You know, I've heard of stories of, of friends of mine, you know, athletes using modafinil in the middle of the night, you know, a narc, an anti-narcotic drug to uh, allow them to go. This person said they were running, they were shuffling 12-minute miles. They took the modafinil, which he had never taken before. He was handed, it was handed to him by a physician. 
oh, that was in their group. And he said, we went to seven minute miles immediately. And I was like, yeah, of course. That's cheating. <laughs> but I've never heard of that. Yeah, one. there's nobody out there. That's made famous by Dave Asprey, who used to love this drug. He was on 60 Minutes talking about as a performance enhancer for you know Silicon Valley and CEOs who need to think on their feet and be very productive. But it's you know an anti-narcolepsy uh, drug that basically keeps you awake and keeps you sharp and has its purpose. Ah. But um, I would suggest that's not uh, in ultra running for FKTs. But that's just my personal <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll have to edit this out, uh, Pat, so people have, we, we don't hear that one. I had never heard of that one. Yeah, I of course oh. have heard about. Caffeine. Mm. Caffeine is, of course, a drug. It's a PED, a performance enhancing drug. Mm. And by far, in my opinion, the most effective PD out there. Oh. Caffeine really works. I mean, the double blind studies prove that it works quite well. Yeah. And it's quite legal and it's used by almost everyone. Yeah, the world over. Yeah, I mean, I can't argue that. There are just certain drugs that we've decided are, are safe and uh, everyone's on them. <laughs> you know, I try to limit my use. I'm pretty sensitive to it, but cannot deny the right caffeine at the right time in a race certainly picks your pace up. I, I would argue not as not as much as modafinil would, but it's certainly uh, certainly one of the drugs right. altering for sure. Yeah, right. Well, I digressed, Matt. Not you. It's it just interesting questions. Yeah. Sometimes I start to feel a little uncomfortable when we look at bad guys and say, "Oh, I blame them." When we also need to look at it in the context of our culture. We are in a drug culture. Yeah. That's what everybody does. That's what the major corporations do. And that's what the medical industrial complex tries to tell us all to do. Far, far more people are dying of opioid overdoses mm -hmm. from prescribed medicines than have ever, ever been harmed by performance enhancing drugs. Sure. And so I'd like to take some personal responsibility and group responsibility to try to back the whole thing up and moderate the whole thing. So we are supporting an entire culture and a community that is not win at all costs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm just, I think you've written this fantastic book, but my part of where I go is, okay, well, what can we do about this? Yeah. Well, and for me, part of that is a little bit of self-responsibility of let's support honesty and integrity and a different attitude yeah. of what really is the goal here is the goal to win at all costs or is the goal to be authentic with who we are. Yeah. And man, I agree with you. I can't disagree. I mean, I, I would def not defend that might be too harsh a term, but uh, writing the book in that, you know, it's only through these stories and understanding and, you know, having a, an autopsy of what went wrong. Cause something obviously went wrong when we're dealing with, uh, you know, USADA, drug bans. Um, I think these stories about, and the story that I tell in this book will help us, you know, it's a cautionary tale uh, for athletes to learn from, for coaches to learn from. You know, that's what I hope people get out of it. Not that, you know, Alberto's the worst person in the world. Certainly I tried to be as fair to him as I could. Um, and, you know, I know he's a human. We're nuanced. No one's all good. No one's all bad. You know, that's ridiculous. And, and that certainly isn't the way the book goes. That's not the way I went about the reporting. And, and that's not what you'll get at the end of this. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's a, there's a cultural thing going on. You know, there was a cultural thing in Nike. There's a cultural thing in the sport. Um, and, and we need to address that. Uh, but I feel like, you know, books about the topic and or what went wrong, you know, it's basically the first step. It's an autopsy. Like how, all right, what, what can we do better the next time? Uh, and how can we, you know, achieve some goals or maybe alter the goals uh, going forward for American athletes or athletes who hope to come out of sport with some integrity. Fantastic. That what, what a great job, Matt. Well said. And indeed as a cautionary tale, it's so important because like you said, Kara Goucher, these are intelligent people, very, very well-meaning people. And they get roped into this. And of course, Mary Kane, as you know, the best runner of of her generation. And then she kind of went sideways after she signed on with Nike. Yeah. So what you've done, Matt, is fantastic. And so hopefully uh, this will be required reading. That's a good idea. This should be required reading 
for high school runners? How's that? Yeah, I like that. I've heard some from some friends who have kids in high school that, you know, they're excited to read the book for the same reasons, just, you know, to learn what to watch out for and, and to take some, you know, remain vigilant and take some personal responsibility. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, are you going out on the lecture tour or in times of the pandemic? No such thing. I think we're doing it. I think you're kicking it off for me. I mean, yeah, basically, you know, the normal tour, uh, HarperCollins would have flown me out to New York to try to get on as many shows as I can and things based in New York City. But, you know, pandemic times, uh, we're, we're all going to do it uh, remotely. And, you know, things out of my control. So I just let them let them ride, see what happens. And, It'll be fine. The book's good. It'll sell. And, you know, I got to, you know, move on to the next one. But yeah, no book tour. um, Just, uh, you know, Zooming and podcasts like this. But I think we'll get the word out. And if the book's good, it'll sell. And the book is good. I hope it does sell. And people can buy it right now, literally right now, by going to the show notes on our website and clicking that the link provided. Well, Matt... Thanks very much. It took like a year to get you on the podcast, but it was worth it. Appreciate your patience. This is great. It's good talking to you, Buster.